Amen. Thank you, Brother JP. And for the great truth in song, we're going to look at really that truth played out in Psalm 80 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles there, let's turn to the 80th Psalm. And so again, thank you all so much for being here. It's great to see Andrea back there this morning. And so she is uh, delivering a child sometime tonight or tomorrow. And so she goes to the hospital tonight at 7 o'clock. And uh, about the last person that I expected to make it today was, was she and, and Fabian. And so God bless you both for being here. And uh, I'm excited for them. I'm praying for Fabian. And so I, I told them before the service, I said, you better be prepared to duck. Uh, and so he's in there when the baby's coming. If they don't give her the right medicine, then he is going to be uh, enemy number one. And so, uh, and so I, think, I think Brother Chris gave him some helpful advice in the Sunday school hour this morning too. Miss Joanna says he was no help. Uh, and, so, uh, and so, but God bless you folks. We'll definitely, we'll be praying for you tonight and tomorrow as the Lord gives you your first child. And so praise the Lord for new life coming. And that's a blessing. And so God bless you. We're excited for you. And so others, it's great to see uh, folks that we visited with on yesterday here today have been visiting. It's a blessing. And so praise the Lord for you as well. Uh, and it's just good to come together in the Lord's house. So we're going to look uh, at this in so entire psalm this morning. I'm going to read just a few verses here as we get started. Um, and then we're going to come back and work our way down through the psalm to just kind of establish the context and understand exactly what uh, the point that the psalmist is making uh, this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the great psalmists. David, of course, was the, was the chief psalmist. Uh, but Asaph served in David's time um, and was a great composer and singer uh, and a leader of their worship in the temple or the tabernacle there during David's time. And so uh, he probably wrote more, other than David, he has authored more or wrote, excuse me, uh, more psalms than any other writer uh, as the Lord gave them. And so when we look here, and, and we're going to back up in a minute, but notice verse number three. He says, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now notice, if you will, verse number seven. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be be saved. Then in verse number 19, one more time, he says, Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. I want to speak this morning simply on the thought, turn us. And let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you again for the years that we've had in this place, Lord, different folks coming and going as you've led and guided and directed. Uh, Lord, but the name of Christ elevated, exalted, preached, proclaimed. Lord, what a blessing. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to carry that on, to carry on that legacy. Lord, I pray that you would do greater things here in the years to come that have been done in the years past. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a part of it. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in our service of you. But Lord, right now, as we open your word, I pray that you'd help us also to open our hearts. Lord, if you uh, speak, but we're unwilling to listen, if we're unwilling to hear and to receive what you have for us, it's all in vain. And Lord, I pray that you'd help our hearts to be in tune with what you have. I pray that you would, again, uh, each one of us, that you, would, that you would search us, that you would try us, that you would reveal to us our own sin, that you may deal with it, that we might find forgiveness and that we might deliver it in victory from it, that you might be glorified and that our lives might be used to honor you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that, to have a heart for that. Lord, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name and amen. So as we look here, Israel is in a, in a mess. They are Typically, as you watch them throughout their history, they have a lot of ups and downs. They have a lot of times that they're walking in revival and they're serving God faithfully. They have other times that they're in rebellion to God, uh, that they want to do things their own way, that they want to go their own way. Uh, and they don't really pay much attention until God brings judgment to get their attention. And when God brings judgment and brings them to a place where they're struggling, where they're suffering, where they're going through hardship uh, or attack of the enemy, then they begin to cry out to God. When they find themselves unable to solve their own problems, then they begin to look to God to solve their problems. 
When they began to, it's amazing how that works. Sometimes we think, well, why would God let us go through what we go through? Well, perhaps we've forgotten him. And he just wants us to, wants to let us know that, we're, that he's there. Uh, so that we'll return to him and so that we'll lean upon him. Uh, and so in verse number one, he says, or, or the, he writes, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And so right off the bat, the psalmist writes here and he begins to cry out to God on behalf uh, of Israel. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, of that thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth. So immediately he's addressing God and he's referencing him as shepherd, the one that cares for my soul, the one that leads me, the one that protects me, the one that, that corrects me, rebukes me, the one that keeps me where he needs me to be and where he wants me to be, that meets my every need. He's acknowledging that to God. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength. Now notice their condition and come and save us. So right off the bat, they're saying, God, we need you. We need salvation. They are besieged by the enemy. We cannot solve our problem. We cannot take care of our issue. God, we need you. And so there's an acknowledgement and they are at a time when things aren't necessarily going well. Verse number three, turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? And you stop and you think, and why would God be angry at the prayer of his people? You would think if people are praying, that would make God happy. But if the prayer is not the right prayer, then God's not pleased. If we're looking for and longing for things that God, and we're not on the same page that the Lord's on, uh, then God is not going to be pleased with our prayer. If we're not right with God in our spirit, if our heart's not in tune with Him, if we're walking and doing things uh, according to the wisdom of man rather than the leadership of God, uh, then our prayer is not something that is pleasing to Him and he uh, lays out here that you're angry at the prayer, or, or angry against the prayers of thy people. Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. God's response to what it is that they're praying is that they are uh, broken and they are besieged, they are distraught. It's not bringing joy and happiness; it's bringing tears. Listen, sin should be bringing tears to God's people. When I'm embroiled in sin, I should not walk around arrogantly or in joy. I should, be, uh, I should be ashamed and I should be weeping, longing for restoration with my God. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. We are, we are so weak in this state that our enemies laugh and mock at us. The people that used to fear you, God, and what you were doing amongst us now laugh and mock us. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Now he's referring to God of hosts. A host in the scripture refers to a military force, an army. God, you are the God of the armies of Israel, the armies of the angels of heaven. Turn us again, O God of hosts, the one that has the power to, to come and to solve all of these issues and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Isn't it amazing how when God's glory and face shines and sin is exposed and we turn from our sin and repent and come to Christ that God is glorified and we're saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her bows into the sea, and her branches into the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It, this vine, is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perished at the rebuke of thy countenance. 
Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand and upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Now he's given here an analogy and a picture of Israel as a vine. Uh, as Israel is a vine of grapes. And he's saying, God, this is the vineyard that you have planted. That you brought your people out of Egypt. You brought your people out of sin. Egypt is always a picture, uh, or usually a picture of sin in the scripture. You brought your people out of sin and you're bringing them into this promised place of favor where you can bless them and where you can empower them and where they can glorify you and where you can be glorified in them. That is your will. You want them to spread out. You want them to encompass the earth. You want them to take the message of the gospel everywhere that they go. This God is your purpose, but this vineyard is out of control. This vineyard is, is being wasted. The hedges that protect it, that are to keep out the enemy are broken down and the enemy comes in and picks it bare. God, what is for you and what is to glorify you is wasted. And by the way, whenever we allow sin in our life and cling to it, we waste the blessings and the power of God that he wants for and has for us. Now, if we're going to understand this, we need to leave here for a moment. Hold your place there and go to Isaiah chapter 5. If those of you that are in the walk class on, uh, on Saturdays, then uh, this is going to be a little bit redundant for you uh, from what we covered just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so bear with me just for a moment. But if we're going to understand what Asaph is communicating here, then we need to understand God's perspective on this idea of Israel being the vineyard that he's planted. So Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 1 says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And so God has a vineyard that's in a fruitful hill. And he fenced it. And he gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. God has chosen out the best vine, the most fruitful ground. He's cleared away all of the, the weeds and all of the stones. Anything that would be a hindrance to it flourishing, God has removed so that it would produce a pure and good grape. But what it produced instead was wild grapes. And verse number three says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem... And men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought, forth, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. There shall, not come up there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry. And so what you have is a picture of God's intent. God chose Israel. God led Israel. God delivered Israel from sin. God removed every obstacle to their growth and blessing. God took away everything that would destroy and hinder them. And he said, flourish. Flourish and produce. Flourish and bring forth good fruit. Fruit that remains. Flourish and bring forth that which will please and glorify and honor me. Bring it forth. But they clung to their sin. They chose their sin. He said, I want you to be a pure grape. I want you to be a flourishing grape. I want you to be uh, a, a, uh, something that's honorable. But instead, they, they produced that which was wild. In other words, they just did what they wanted to do. 
They did not do and follow the leading of God. They followed their own leading. And then God says to them in Isaiah, then this is what's going to happen. Because you have chosen to go your own way and to live in and to embrace your sin, then I'm going to unleash and not protect you from the consequences of your sin. If you've ever planted a garden and you've gone out and you've tilled up the ground and you've gotten all, all the weeds and you've gotten out all the rocks and you've gotten down all the briars and you've gotten rid of all the pests, uh, you learn really quickly that if you don't maintain it, that it all comes back. Going in and plucking out all of that is not a one-time job, it is a perpetual job. It must be done throughout the entire season. It's more difficult at the beginning because you're starting from scratch. And if you take care of it little by little, it's not so difficult. But if you let it go and it gets overrun, then it's very time consuming. It's very hindering. It's a great hindrance to the production of the plant and its root system. It's stealing all of the nutrients that would make it flourish. And if you don't maintain it, then it's going to be choked out eventually and it will become unproductive and then it eventually will just wither away and dry up and die. That's what's experiencing, being experienced by Israel here. They are at a time when God said, I wanted you to flourish, but you chose your sin. I wanted you to embrace uh, the good, clean, beautiful things that I provided, but instead you want your thorns and your briars and your thistles. You want that which is going to hinder my working in your life. You want to cling to that which is going to become an obstacle to my speaking to your soul. And because of that, uh, the briars are going to come back and the thorns are going to come back and the weeds are going to come back and the walls are going to be broken down and uh, people are going to come and ravage you and they're going to come and trod you underfoot. And so they're there dealing with the consequences of their sin. And my friends, this morning, that's what sin does. Sin comes in and sin takes root and sin spreads out and sin chokes away from us all of God's blessing and all of God's leading and all of God's guiding. And the more power it gets and the more that it expands in our life, the more choked out the things of God are and the less fruit we produce for his glory until finally we succumb and we are dead in the field needing to be revived by our supernatural God. And Israel finds themselves in such a place and they express as much in verse number two when they said, come and save us. We need saving this morning. Listen, they've enjoyed God's blessing. He's freed them from the bondage in Egypt as we saw in verse number eight. He prepared a place for them. In verse 9, he described how they were firmly established in their new life. God had given them all that was necessary. But as time wore on, Israel's passion for God faded. Their obsession with their own desires, their own wants, and the blending in of their ways with the ways of the tribes and the peoples around them uh, took over and God was neglected. Soon they opened their lives to their sin and in disobedience uh, they revolted from God and their once obedient heart turned into a rebellious disobedient heart against God and then they embraced the gods of the world. Literally, they set up hedges and they set up high places and they made themselves literal idols and they bowed down and worshipped them and defiled the worship of God. Their rebellion and in their rebellion God sent oppressors. He sent other nations to, uh, to, to fight against them, to war against them, to besiege them, so that they would realize that the predicament that they had placed themselves in required the assistance of God, that their false gods could not help because stones and carvings of wood cannot hear and cannot respond and have no power. But the living God of Israel has power. Amen. And so God allowed tragedy to prevent eternal tragedy. God prevented or allowed temporary predicaments to get their attention so that he could work eternal reward in their life. And as they lived in their rebellion and the oppressors came, they became desperate and in their desperation, they recognized that they needed a savior. They needed God to come and they say, come and save us. Stir up thy strength and come and save us. 
Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine. Our problem is, is that we allow the, the, the beauty of the things of this world that's superficial and not lasting and is deceitful to shine and to uh, diminish the light of God in our lives until we lose sight of him. But what they're saying is, God, turn, turn up the brightness of your light so that the world is, is darkened. Come and save us. Turn us again. The word turn is a simple word. Um, we, we understand it pretty well. It has some many different meanings. Actually, if you were to go and look in the dictionary, you'll find that there are approximately 30, uh, maybe slightly more than 30 different variations to the definition. Now, I like to give definitions, but I'm not about to stand here and give you 32 of them. Okay, so the word turn means to alter or to change form or purpose. It is to change the effect of. To repurpose something from one, for one purpose to another. It, it means uh, to change direction. And so ultimately what they're saying to God is God change our direction and repurpose our lives. Now when I worked in factories and I was in college for a while there was a, a plant that opened up down the road and they manufactured plastic barrels. Now plastic barrels are pretty common today. But in the mid-80s, they, they were a new thing. And, you know, everybody had these 55-gallon barrels, these metal drums, and they would load them down with all kinds of chemicals and liquids, and they're still widely used today, I understand that. But the problem with a metal drum is if it drops and if it falls off of something from any height, it often breaks and ruptures and spills everything that's in it. So the advantage to one of these plastic drums is that it could be dropped from uh, a significant height relative to what was in it and it wouldn't break. It didn't get dented. You had to really have a pretty sharp fork on a forklift to puncture it. You did it just right and have it pin basically pinned against something. And so they built this plant. Uh, it wasn't real big, but it had two big machines in it that were built by Mauser Company, which is a famous German company for producing rifles and things of that nature uh, prior to World War II. And after World War II, they were forced to repurpose their, uh, to turn uh, their function from weapons production to, uh, to industrial equipment production. And so I remember they built the building and I was the very first person that they hired to come in. And I was just an 18, 19 year old kid. Uh, and, but I was the first employee hired to come in just as a laborer. And just I was going around and sweeping up and moving stuff here and moving stuff there. And then I worked on the production line after the machines were installed. And they flew technicians in from Germany, uh, West Germany still at the time. And uh, they set the machines up and they calibrated them. And, uh, and uh, they would drop these, uh, these rail cars would bring in these little plastic beads. And the plastic beads went into the machine and it would melt it. Uh, and then it would drop down into the mold and the mold would close. And the two, two little things would go up and it would blow air into this plastic and it would separate it out and it was just a big blow mold. And it perfectly formed this 55 gallon drum. And at that time, and I don't know what all they do there now, but at the time we made two drums, 55 gallon drums and 30 gallon drums. Now the plastic barrels before that had these big heavy rings that had to be pressed on when they were still hot. These were just one continual piece. It was revolutionary technology of its day. When it came out, all we had to do was take a knife and trim up all the flashing from around the mold and put the bungs in it, and it was ready to go. Load on the truck. And every, at the end of every production run, the machine had to be cleaned. If you change colors, if you uh, change sizes, all of that had to be cleaned out. It had to be turned for the next job. It had to be repurposed. What God is saying here, what the psalmist is communicating, what they're asking God to do is to acknowledge that, God, we have sinned against you. Our purpose has been to satisfy our own flesh. Our purpose has been to satisfy our own soul, to fulfill our own wants, wishes, dreams, and desires. Turn us and cause thy face to shine that we might be redirected or repurposed to serve and to glorify you, to fulfill your desire, to fulfill your purpose for our life. Turn us. 
We oftentimes sit in services and we want revival and we want to hear God speak and we want God to move us and we want God to show us next steps and we want God to use our lives and we cry out to God to come and to hear us, but we're not willing to be turned. What I'm saying this morning is simply this, that it's not enough for me to come to God and say, because this is what we do, God, I want you to use my life. I want to honor and glorify you. I want you to accept my sacrifice. I want you to be honored by my activity and the things that I do. And I want to love you with all my heart. But what we're doing is we're coming to God and we're saying, I'm bringing me in my current state and I'm asking you, God, to take me in my current condition and to use me as I am to glorify you, but our vessel is corrupted by sin. And we just want to add God to what we do. You see that a lot in missionaries. If you talk to missionaries that serve the Lord in Eastern cultures, what they'll tell you is this, is that Early on when you go in and you begin to minister, it's really not that difficult on the surface to get people to, con to, to accept Jesus as their Savior because their religious system has taught them to have many gods. And it's really not that big of a deal to them if it's, if it's being polite to you. Rudeness is a big thing in their culture. They don't want to be rude, so rather than offend you, Brother Buck, They'll accept another God. Oh, you're my new neighbor. You want to share your God with me? I'll add him to my collection. Whenever I was pastoring in Arkansas in our little school, we had a, a couple of twin girls that were from India. Uh, and their family had immigrated from India. And their, uh, their family owned a hotel in town. And, uh, and we would go there at times and visit them. And, uh, and, and they had taken a couple of the hotel rooms and converted it into this big apartment. And it was, uh, really didn't look like anything other than hotel rooms on the outside. But it was quite nice inside. And in the corner of their living room, they had a shrine. And in the shrine, they had many gods. In all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes. And it was no problem for them to come to a Christian school where Jesus was emphasized. They, the girls came home singing, Jesus loves me and Jesus loves the little children. And they were okay with that because they weren't renouncing their other gods. What I'm saying this morning is if my attitude as a Christian is to come to God and say, God use me, God bless me, but if you're going to use me, and if you're going to bless me, then you're going to have to accept me while I'm doing things the way that I want to do them. It doesn't work that way. God, I'll do that for you as long as I don't have to do anything differently. I want to talk about you, but I don't want you to tell me what to say. I want to come up with my own thing. I'm not going to submit to you. And that's the essence of this psalm. When he looks at them, Israel's problem is that they're doing things their way. They're doing things in their, what, what's pleasing to themselves in a way that they have justified in their heart and their mind that I can sing praises, I can preach sermons, I can, uh, I can do this activity and that activity and God will be glorified and pleased. But if the vessel is corrupt, then there is no pleasing God. They have a corrupt vessel. God points out to them, you are my vineyard, but you brought forth wild grapes. You haven't brought forth what I planted you to bring forth. You haven't remained obedient to what I've called you to be. And they come to a place after the walls are broken down and after they're trodden underfoot and after they've been plucked and ravaged by their neighbors and after God has withheld his blessing from them to where they finally have come to a place where they're willing to say, God, turn me. Before it was, God, use me my way. Now it's God, turn me. Repurpose my life. 
repurpose my motive, repurpose my direction, repurpose my, my, my desires and make me and help me to come to establish that relationship with you first and foremost so that you can be pleased. Turn us. They were beyond asking for a turn in their circumstances. They were asking for a turn of their heart. They're not saying, God saved me from the Assyrian. They're saying, God, not, God saved me from Absalom. Not, God saved me from the Philistine. They're saying, God, turn me. How long, Christian, has it been since you've, that you've bowed on your knees and pled out to God not to change your circumstances, but to change yourself? Amen. How long since I cried out to God and sought His help, His direction? They were finally at a place where they were ready for a turn, for a change of direction and a change of heart. They were dissatisfied with their position. They were dissatisfied with where they were and they were desperate for God. And I would submit to you this morning this, that until I become desperate for God, I'll never experience God on a real level. Until I'm desperate for him, I'll never pray hard enough. I'll never pray earnestly enough. I'll never pray and seek his power like I should. I'll never be or have all that God wants me to be and have until I come to God on his terms and say, God, I'm desperate for you. I don't want anything else. Nothing else matters but you. God, I'm longing for you. And we see four primary things here in our text this morning, mostly beginning at, or here at the end. Uh, we see the desperation in verse 2, but I want you to notice down at verse 16, as he describes the vineyard, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand and upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from thee. God, come to us. We're not going to leave you again. We will not go back from you, God. Quicken us. Make us alive again. And we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. So what do we see here this morning? Number one is the condition of the people. My friends, if I'm not willing to recognize and to acknowledge my condition, I have nowhere else to go for God. Amen. If I'm here this morning and I've never received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I cannot make any progress in the steps toward finding Him as my Savior and accepting His salvation and forgiveness for my sin if I'm unwilling to recognize and acknowledge my condition. If I'm backslidden this morning, if I'm cold and indifferent toward the things of God, if I'm not walking, we'll say, well, pastor, I'm not backslidden. I'm not out living in sin and I'm not doing out sinful things. My friends, if I have ever had a time in my life when I was more on fire, more passionate about, more in tune with, more submitted to, more surrendered to the ways and the will of God in my life than I am right now in this moment and I'm backslidden. There are no half measures. There is no middle ground. I am either fully committed more so than I've ever been in my life in this moment or I'm backslidden against God. We want to address things. We want to look at things. We want to sugarcoat things. We want to twist it to our own understanding so that we present ourselves to ourselves in the best possible light. And there is no light that's pleasing to God other than the reality of where I am this morning. Where am I? How sincerely am I committed to him? We see the condition of the people. They're cut down. They're desperate. And what we see in verses 16 and 18 is three things here. Number one, they're burned up. They're burned up. They're destruction. In other words, their life is in shambles. And you can go out and you can live in sin and you can put a nice face on it. And you can present to the world at large a display of a life that's under control, that's in order, uh, and that's, uh, that is acceptable to the world around you. But you know in your heart and in your own mind that your walk with God, that your peace, that, that, that what you have in your heart with the Lord, is a, it's a wreck. Oh, I can dress it up and I can make it look good when I go out. But when I get alone with God, I have to admit that my walk with God is a disaster. They are destructed. They're burned up. 
Their life is in shambles. And it doesn't matter how well together you look on the outside this morning. If your spiritual life is in shambles, then you need God to turn you. It says they are cut down. And so we see them burned up, they're destroyed. We see them cut down, which means that they are severed from light, the life-giving roots. Not only are they destroyed and have a life that's in shambles, but their sin is so severe that they have been severed from the life-giving root, which means that they are without hope. There is no hope, my friends, this morning outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hope in salvation. There is no hope in escape of eternal judgment in the lake of fire. There is no hope of turning back to God and finding, facing and having revival in my life. There is no hope of the blessing of God in my life if I am severed from God. They are severed from him. They are cut down. Thirdly, we see that they're crying out. They're desperate. They have no hope and they're desperate for that blessed hope. They're looking to be grafted back in. They're looking to be reattached to that life-giving Savior. They're looking to be brought back and to be restored. And the good news is, is that if I will come to myself and realize my true condition and acknowledge it and notice that I'm helpless, acknowledge my hopelessness, acknowledge my helplessness, acknowledge that I've made a disaster out of my life, then God is ready, willing, and able and has all the power necessary to restore me. He wants to restore you this morning. He wants to forgive your sin this morning. He wants to set you free from the things that hold you in bondage. He wants to lift you up. He wants the Lord Jesus Christ to be exalted in your life. He wants to take you from where you are and bring you to where he wants you to be. He wants to turn you and repurpose your life and put you on a course that pleases and honors God. Amen. It is the condition of the people. Would I be honest enough with myself this morning in my own heart and to God to say, God, my condition is a wreck. My condition is hopeless. I feel so beat down. I've tried to do things right so many times and I've failed and I've never won the victory. My friends this morning realize that you cannot do it on your own. It can only be done through the power of God. Just as supernaturally as you had to be saved, so must you supernaturally need to be delivered from your sin. It's power. And God is just the one to do it. He is the only one to do it. The condition of the people. Secondly, consider this morning the consensus of the people. Now, I'm not a believer at all in the consensus of the people and the, the, with the idea of that we all have to have uh, an agreement about uh, what we're going to do going forward uh, as far as like, are we going to live for God, serve God, work for God? I, I, I don't believe that the purpose of the church is to go out into the community and try to discern what people want or expect from church. It is our responsibility to stand up and preach Jesus. Amen. I, I couldn't care less what the culture thinks that the church should do. It doesn't make one bit of difference to me uh, what those out in the community would fill out on a survey card about what they want from church. Amen. It doesn't matter what we want from church. It matters what God wants to give us in the church. Amen. And we're not here to please and to serve the community. We're here to please and to serve God. Amen. We're here to preach Jesus. The consensus of the people here, however, is, is that they're hungry for God. And I have to admit this morning that it is, a, it is a great tool if we as a body of Christ that's assembled here together today rally around the cause of being turned to God and seeing God's revival come and we give ourselves to prayer and we give ourselves to committed, committing ourselves to do things God's way. If our consensus is, is that we're going to step up and cry out to God, then that's a good consensus. And the consensus of the people here is, is threefold. Number one, they stopped seeing how bad others needed God and they realized how much they needed God. And the first step in our lives is to stop justifying ourselves by what we see others doing. Amen. Apostle Paul wrote it this way, if you compare yourselves among yourselves, then you are not wise. I can always find somebody out there that makes me look good. And I can go find somebody that makes me look bad. Yeah. There's always somebody that's better than me and there's always somebody that's more sinful than me. 
If I want to justify what I want to do, I can drive up and down the streets of, uh, of Baytown and I can go home feeling great about my walk with God. But if I go get, a hold, get alone with somebody that's got a hold of God and God has got a hold of them, I go home feeling beaten and convicted. None of us are where we ought to be. All of us have God pulling at us, drawing us. But the consensus of the people is that they come together and they stop looking at everybody else. They stop blaming everybody else. The blame shifting game is over and the acceptance of their own personal responsibility for their sin is accepted. And it's the first step in coming to God and saying, forgive me. I'm not really seeking God's forgiveness if I'm saying to God, God, forgive me for my bitterness, but this person did this to me. God, forgive me for my angry spirit, but I'm angry because they did. In other words, what I'm saying is, I'm bitter, I'm angry, but it's their fault. God, forgive me for their fault, but it's their fault. There's no forgiveness there. There's forgiveness when I come to God in humility and when I come to God accepting responsibility for the fact. I'm not saying that you haven't been wrong, that you haven't been hurt. I, I've been there too. I'm just saying this morning that I'm not going to answer to God for what they've done. I'm going to answer to God for how I respond. And when I come to God and say, God, I have sinned against you, that's the end of it. If there is a but, there's no need to go any farther talking to God. There is no but. I've sinned. And I need forgiveness. Amen. Why did you sin, Pastor? It doesn't matter. Why did that come into your life? It's irrelevant. But what if you had a good reason? No reason is good enough. Yeah. I'm responsible. I, I can feel good about myself compared to man. Or I can live in the reality of eternity and say that I need God to make me something that I'm not. Yeah, amen. And when I stop seeing how bad others need God, then we do that. And here's the problem and here's the reality. We sit through a sermon like this and if what's going through your mind is, man, sick and preacher, that's good. Miss Sharon sitting there thinking, Brother Charles sure needs this this morning. I hope he's listening. Miss Leela's thinking, get him again, preacher. Brother Buck needed that one. <laughs> Brother Buck's thinking, I hope this little Leela sitting next to me has got this, they got her ears turned on this morning. If that's our attitude, Come on. we're not getting anywhere. When we get our eyes off of what everybody else does and what everybody else needs or what we think they need and we get off our self-righteous high horse and we humble ourselves before God and we stand up and we look at God and we see who and what he is, then we come before him realizing that I woe is me as Isaiah said. Amen. And we seek him. The people burned up, cut down, crying out, stop looking at how bad others needed God and realize how badly they needed God. Secondly, because of that realization, we see that they sought the face of God. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine. They're seeking God. Verse 2, they come, stir up thy strength and come and save us. God, I'm not strong enough, but you are. Come and save me. And we see them seeking the face of God. Cause thy face to shine. Thirdly, we see that they were desperate for God's presence. And that desperation in God's presence is twofold. First, in the presence of God, we find salvation. In the presence of God, I found a Savior who was willing to forgive my sin and to birth me into his family. Also in that God, I find a God when I'm backslidden and I'm turned away from him, I find a loving father that's willing to forgive me and to welcome me back into fellowship with him. And what I'm saying is that in God's presence is salvation. And in, in addition, once that's established, once I've trusted him as my savior, or once I have sought forgiveness as an errant and as a wayward and as a rebellious son, and I've reconciled in my relationship with, right with God, the second thing we see is that when I come, then I, fit, then I experience in the presence of God the fulfillment of joy. And pastor, I've been saved and I, I'm, I'm trying to do right, but there's just no joy in my Christian life. Perhaps there's something between you and your savior. 
I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what goes on in your mind. I don't know what's going on in your heart. And I don't particularly care to know or need to know. But I know this, that if I am in fellowship with my Father and there's nothing between my soul and my Savior, then I will have peace and I will have joy. If I don't have peace and if I don't have joy, then that's a pretty good indication that there's something in the way. What is it? Well, Pastor, I don't have any sin, but I'm worried. Pretty sure that qualifies as sin. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Pastor, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't have any sin in my life, but I'm really stressed out. <laughs> Who are we trusting in? Self or the Savior? See, if I'm trusting in God, I don't have anything to stress about. Amen. If I'm trusting in God, I don't have anything to worry about. If I'm reliant and dependent upon him, then it doesn't matter that the world is burning down around us this morning. What matters is that we serve and worship and praise our God. And he let him take care of the outcome of the rest of it. Amen. And we come and we look and we understand that there is a God who loves us on the throne that is working to fulfill his will and in his presence is fulfillment and joy. The third thing that we see about the people here is their conversion. The conversion of the people. In verse number 18, so will not we go back from thee, quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Quicken us. Two thoughts on this. Number one, they turn from their sin. Let backsliders and the lost alike turn from their sin. No person can receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior until they turn from their sin. And no Christian can experience the joy, the peace, and the power of God until we turn from our sin. They turn from their sin. God, turn us. And when they turn from their sin, what they turn to? Listen, it doesn't do me any good to turn off of the path that I'm on if I take the next wrong turn. I have to get on the right road. I have to get on the right path. What's the right path? The will of God. Seeking the face of God. They turn to God. My Lord and my Master. I'm not serving me anymore. I'm serving him. The conversion of the people. And lastly this morning we see the commitment of the people. The commitment. And understand this morning that I must recognize my condition. I must come to the consensus within my own soul that I'm the one that's broken and needs to be fixed and restored with God. And I must allow God to convert me either to him in the first place in salvation or to convert me from my sin and back to serving him as his child, restoring fellowship. And then I must be committed to him. The commitment of the people. We will call. Asaph writing, the people singing, so will not we go back from thee. Quicken us and we will call upon thy name. They are unified and together we will call. They're committed together in twofold way. They're committed to God's service. Do things God's way. Be committed to the service of God. Listen, what purpose is there for a church to assemble if we're not jointly unified, committed to serving God together? Committed to worshiping God. Committed to growing in His grace. Committing to, to doing the things that God has for us to do. We are committed to God's service. And then lastly, secondly here, uh, under the commitment of the people, they're committed to make a difference. Listen, if we do anything, we ought to be making a difference. You ought to make a difference to the people in your life at home. The Lord Jesus Christ working in us should make a difference to the people that we go to school with, the people that we work with, the people that we interact with, the people in our neighborhood, the people that we rub elbows with, the people that are upset with us, the people that love us, the people that, uh, that come into our life in any way, shape, or form, that if they look at us and they look deeply at us and they get to know us, what they should come to understand is that I am committed to serving my God, and then when they do, then they'll realize that that commitment to that service will cause a difference to be made in their life. They might reject him. They might reject him for a long time. They might struggle and they might not be able to overcome their sin because they haven't got it quite figured out. But they just keep leaning upon you and seeking your guidance and asking you to pray for them and asking and God giving you opportunities to intervene. What's he doing? God is putting you in their life to have an opportunity to make a difference. Don't waste it. Listen, if I need to make a difference in your life, Carl, and, and, and I've got all kinds of sin in my own life, then when you come, I can't make a difference in your life. Not a good difference. 
where is my commitment this morning? God comes to his people, the psalmist writes, and God's people sing as they worship him, shepherd of Israel, protector, leader, provider, the one who does everything to make us flourish. I've sinned against you. And I'm paying a price for it. My life is in shambles. I have no peace and no joy. And I'm desperate for you. I'm willing to turn away from everything that I know. From everything that I've tried. I'm willing to turn away from all the wisdom of men. So that I can turn to you. I'm not wanting Jesus to add you to the other gods in my life. I am renouncing the other gods of my life. And I'm making you my only God. My only Lord. My only Savior. Now understand this morning, that means that your children cannot be your God and God be your God at the same time. That your husband or your wife cannot be on the throne of your heart and God be on the throne of your heart at the same time. That your career and your vacation schedule and all of those things cannot be preeminent in your life and Jesus be preeminent in your life as well. There's only room on the throne of our heart for one God. That place belongs to him. When I give him that place, I'm a better husband. When I give him that place, I'm a better father. When I give him that place, I'm a better grandfather. When I give him that place, I'm a better pastor. When I give him that place, I'm a better friend, better neighbor, better worker, better everything. The only thing that I need to do is realize that the problems in my life are because of me. They're not belonging to anyone else. And I recognize my condition. And I come to the realization that it's not anyone's fault but my own and I need to come to God. And I allow him to convert me, to turn me. Notice that they're not saying, God, we're turning to you. Turn us. They're not self-reliant. They're not coming arrogantly clothed in false humility saying God we're turning to you accept us they are coming broken and in humility realizing that there's nothing that they can do and they're saying God I am desperate turn me turn me I'm broken fix me I'm empty fill me I have no purpose use me God I'm yours and they allow God to convert their heart and they commit themselves to his cause and his purpose and they make a difference. There's a verse that we love in relation to revival. Most of you could probably quote it this morning. It's found in 2 Chronicles. It's verse number 14. Jehovah is appearing to Solomon and he's come to Solomon and it's early in Solomon's reign and they're establishing the temple and he's given him instruction he's pleading with him to lead the people so that they'll walk with him and never be separated but then he tells them what to do when they mess up this isn't after they've messed up this time this is don't mess up this is what I expect but when you mess up this is how you fix it if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. See, until we see our ways as wicked, we'll never turn. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If you want God to heal your heart, you want God to heal your family, you want God to heal your life, turn. Humble yourself before God and let God turn you.